First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, our guest is Gil Baumgarten, who's the founder and CEO of Segment. Welcome, Gil. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Gil, tell us, I mean, you know, you're in the financial industry. You haven't always uh, been with Segment. You started this up, you know, a little while ago. What What's driven you into the, the, to the finance world and, and into uh, securities? Um, I, I've always done really well with math. So, uh, having a math-based business was always something that I thought I would end up doing. So uh, back in 1984, I went to work for E.F. Hutton and became a, a broker, one of their top producers, and had worked for Morgan Stanley. And actually, prior to Morgan Stanley, it was Smith Barney. That's when I left and moved to Payne Weber. Payne Weber became UBS. And in 2010, I just kind of got fed up with the way the brokerage firms made the rules and uh, made rules for the advisors that clearly were not in the client's best interest. And ultimately, I decided to cast my lots purely with clients, which required me to get out of the brokerage business and re-register as a fee-only fiduciary investment advisor. So now, you know, you talk about, you know, that it's, you know, that you're, that you're doing this more for the client as compared to the benefit of, of a brokerage house or whatever. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Oh, well, the brokerage firms make a lot of money in the dark corners of very hidden places inside of mutual funds and inside of separate accounts. They have these external managers that they use who might also run mutual funds uh, for an independent firm or even for the brokerage firm. Uh, the brokerage firm also has trading desks. The brokerage firm also earns 12B1 fees, which is a kickback from a mutual fund. If you understand that ecosystem, several different components of the firm can be doing business with several different components of the mutual fund and basically driving client costs up. And when they're negotiating for charges between the various entities, they're looking for ways to increase the revenue, not decrease the revenue. And all that revenue comes from the clients that put money in those vehicles. So, you know, talking about the fees and things like that, how can how, how can an individual find out? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everybody always asks, hey, how do you get paid? 
but how can they they ask that question a little bit differently to, it to, is to so, really find out? It is so complicated. I frankly don't think that the investment advisory community fully doesn't fully understand it. Um, I understand it better be, than most because 30 years ago, I went into the branch management side of the business and saw a lot of the internal machinations of the way the businesses operate. And just from what I learned there and then asking difficult questions, and I'm kind of an engineer at my core. I want to know how things work so that I can give better advice to my clients and develop better investing patterns for myself. I have to understand how the taxes work. I want to know where all the nooks and crannies are. And, you know, after 25 years of being in the business, you kind of figure out where those nooks and crannies are. And some of it I just didn't think was right. And so the only way to do you know, something different would be to opt out of the system entirely. I had to give up my Series 7 and all my licenses, which did not entitle me to give advice to clients. It entitled me to earn a commission and fees that were hidden from a client. And a lot of people don't know this, but the standard of care for liability in the brokerage industry is simply suitability. Is what I'm recommending suitable? Well, that's a very low hurdle for the typical investor. Uh, whereas in my business now, it's fiduciary. I have to choose the best choice for the client, given everything that I understand about the client. And all of my needs have to be subrogated to the needs of the client. The brokerage firms operate in a very different way. They can clearly favor themselves in their advice, and they do routinely, uh, only because the standard of care that gives them liability is something called suitability. So uh, that's just the way the ecosystem is built. So, you know, you just said that you gave up all, all your different licenses that that you had to kind of start doing this on your own. So what, yeah. what licenses is it are what licenses do you have now? Well, I don't have any licenses because I'm registered directly with the SEC as a fiduciary. And fiduciaries have to basically uh, obligate themselves to criminal prosecution if they do anything that's not in the best interest of the client. So I have my my burden is that I have to do everything that is the best for the client. Uh, I have to eliminate almost every conflict of interest. Whereas in the brokerage business, I had a Series Seven license, Series Sixty Three, Series Sixty Five. I had a Series Eight Security Supervisors license. I was registered with the MSRB, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. I had an annuity license. I had a life insurance license. I had all that. Every one of those licenses has to do with the commission side of the business operating in spreads, operating in the dark corners, collecting kickbacks and different layers of the onion that get peeled back. That's what all of that, all those licenses have to do with that. Uh, with your register with the SEC as a fiduciary, that's uh, like a fiduciary, for, for those of your listeners who may not be aware, you would not want to have a situation where you hired a CPA and the CPA was arranging your taxes in such a way as to increase the amount of tax that you paid and then get a kickback from the IRS from the increase in taxes. That is the exact way the brokerage business operates in many ways. The brokers conspire to increase the cost that the clients pay. The brokerage firms set up a lot of that ecosystem. And then the brokerage firms behind the client's back will go back and collect money from the provider that the broker recommended to the client. And so is that suitable? Yeah, it could be suitable. Is it best? It's rarely best. Right. So what you're saying is when, when you meet with your broker and your broker tells you, okay, I'm charging you 1% of the assets under management, 
not necessarily them individually, but their firm is getting paid a lot more than that 1%. In many ways, yes. Okay. Uh, and the, when the investor buys mutual funds and is also being charged a fee, the mutual fund fees are invisible to the client because they're taken out of the unit value before it goes on the statement. This is one of the biggest misconceptions of the accounting process within the brokerage industry. When a client is looking at a statement, he or she figures that if I don't see a charge on my statement, there cannot be one. No. Not so. If you have an asset value that's worth $10 a unit and tomorrow it's worth $10.05 and they take a nickel out and then put it on your statement back at $10, you would have never seen that a nickel left your account because they put it on the statement before they ever printed the value of the units. And so unitized pricing is one of those ways that allows the brokers from a little latitude in how they calculate what the fees are. And in the end, it all gets down to disclosure. Did they send you a document that said that they were charging you? And do the clients read those documents? No, they do not read those documents. And on top of that, the prospectuses don't always include all of the costs. The mutual fund industry only has to report the fees that they charge to the client. They don't have to report on the fees that third parties to providing services to the mutual fund then charges. Legal and accounting, for example, there's not a, a line item for legal and accounting. There are legal and accounting charges that get charged against the mutual fund, but it's probably not part of the so-called expense ratio that's being disclosed in the prospectus. So all the fees are generally higher than what the clients perceive them to be. And disclosure is not always the best way to address that. In my situation, I cannot earn a fee that's not not shown on a client statement. I have to have a line item on the client statement. I can't accept any kickbacks, no spreads, no buying a bond for a client that I paid 99,000 for. And I put it in the client's account at a thousand dollars or, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and make a thousand dollar fee. There's no hidden anything. If I pay $99,000 for a 99 or a hundred thousand dollar bond for the client, that's what the client's going to pay. I'm not allowed to siphon off any money in any way. So that's the, that's, those are the primary differences. So, I mean, that's a, a, a lot of good information because I know a lot of people, you know, that we've had on the show, we've talked about it. They've just kind of talked about what their fee is and, and so forth. What are some of the, um, some of the questions besides fees um, when a client comes into you that you, that you wish that they would ask and they haven't? Clients are so misinformed and uninformed about taxes related to securities-based activity. They just don't understand it. They don't understand that an annuity which provides deferral might not be as powerful of a compounder as the salesman was telling them about when he was talking about why they should be buying an annuity. Annuity always leads to ordinary income taxation. Putting it off only prolongs the inevitable. Capital gains activity is capped at half the tax rate of ordinary income. 23.8% is the maximum tax you'll pay on a long-term capital gain. Dividend income is also capped at 23.8%, but not if it's in an annuity. Right. You could be paying 41% or 40.8% is the maximum bracket on capital gain and dividend income that's accumulating inside of an annuity. So what's the value of deferral on that? And capital gains at the death of the first spouse in jointly held property are tax-free 
Not so if you own an annuity, not so if it's in an IRA. So there's all these nuances to the deferral and what's powerful and what's not powerful. And uh, investors just have so little understanding of the way it works. And that's why they rely on advisors to tell them about how this stuff works. Right. Now, I mean, you know, I guess going back to that, that same thing. So why is it that you have the certain advisors that they're, that they're just pushing annuities or, or pushing a product as compared to kind of the, the holistic approach to, to investing? Well, I, I can't speak for them. I can just tell you what patterns I have seen. And there are people who look at okay, I can make a 10th of a percent on buying a treasury bond. I'm talking about a broker looking at his sure. commission. I make a 10th of a percent on buying a treasury bond. Nope, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I can make 1% on a muni bond. Uh, well, maybe I'll do that. I can make 4% on a structured product, or I can make 8% on a life insurance policy on an annuity. Uh, the annuity pays me 80 times what a treasury bond does. I'm selling annuities. You right. just have people that do that. And then they'll go out and give seminars and look for suspects of people who, you know, will buy the pitch. Hey, and I'm not picking on annuities. Annuities have some purpose. They just are overused uh, and over-recommended because the commissions can be really good for the salesman. There are no load annuities, but those aren't the ones that you hear about. There are inexpensive annuities that can do all these things, uh, but those aren't the ones that people are incentivized to tell people about. So it's just a buyer beware. Um, and uh, the, the person that you might think is your advocate may in fact not, not be as, uh, as much of an advocate as they might lead you to believe. Right. So, you know, you've, you've recently written a book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I wrote a book called Foolish. The subtitle is How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. So the first third of the book is about the brokerage industry and the dark corners and the things that they do and these revenue sharing agreements and how they make money from dark places that the clients could never see. Um, and it's told in a story form and in a way that's understandable it's not a bunch of formulas and you know a bunch of lingo it's in it's in human conversation type terms uh, and then the back two-thirds is really about the demons that we have being human uh fear and greed motivations um idolizing our money, not having a stewardship mentality about, hey, I'm just transitional on this world. And there's, you know, I have a legacy that of my kids and the things that I donate to and what's the value of charity with, to me and, uh, you know, the, the demons that we've got and how that plays out and ways and tips. I give people tips on how to get rid of those demons and make better decisions. Um, so that, that's essentially what the book's about. So what made you want to write it? I just saw so many patterns in the brokerage industry of doing that for 25 years. And I've never really seen anybody tell the story about, oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that. You are in the trust business and you do these things that will so jeopardize the trust relationship if people only knew about it. And they spend tremendous amounts of time and energy and effort, the brokerage firms do, do to keep it hidden. Well, what would be the value if somebody were to shine a bright light on that and say, hey, this is the way this works. And I'm not so sure that this is 
it may not it may be legal but it's probably not moral and ethical and so i wanted to shine a light on that and then i saw the same patterns of behavior repeat over and over and over again with people asking questions regarding these emotional issues that they've got that are really founded in principles that should not have a mathematical application in their life they would let their emotions drive their strategy as opposed to letting the the math of the strategy drive their pattern of behavior and so i just see a lot of negative patterns emerge a lot of that is just lack of information about taxes and what is the value of deferral and i never heard the story about the annuity not being that powerful when i'm comparing it to a capital gain which could be tax-free if i took a low velocity methodology uh, as you know an adopted practice and the brokerage firms also encourage clients to have transactional activity which not only drives their fee model but it drives taxes that also harm the client if they had chosen a different pattern of behavior they would have had a much better outcome and so it's just to drive all those things home and let everybody know how the math works and you better be paying attention right so i mean obviously you have years of experience in, in doing this and and um uh, going through this process time and time again so somebody you know you say that you don't have your licenses and stuff and yes you are registered directly with sec so you know we've always uh have been told when you get ready to to use a professional like myself or like you or 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 um another cpa or a broker or anything else to always check them out licensing wise yeah so how can they do that on someone like you who's listed, you know, registered as a fiduciary and, and how does that differ? Uh, any complaint that I would have ever had would be on file with the SEC. I also have a broker record so people can use that broker check form, uh, which is a Googleable, uh, searchable database of, a, in, of uh, infractions that I may have had. Uh, you'll be able to see any customer complaint I ever had which I have none. Uh, and I also have people on staff here who are certified in other areas of the investment realm. I have a CFA on staff. I have a CPA on staff. It's not as though we don't have any certifications, mm -hmm. but the certification process inside of the brokerage business is really an understanding of FINRA's rules. FINRA is the self-governing body of the brokerage industry, FINRA, Financial Industry Regulatory Authority which took the place of the NASD. Uh, that is the commissionable side of the marketplace and the licenses are basically, do you understand the lay of the land and the rules as opposed to the SEC being a fully fiduciary platform that has a lot more punishable, uh, there's a lot more teeth in the SEC rules than there are in FINRA's rules and we're not governed by FINRA. Now, I do use a broker dealer for my client transactions. When a client, you know, puts $10 million with my firm, they're not writing the check to segment wealth management. They're writing a check to Charles Schwab, who is our primary custodian. It could be Fidelity. It could be TD Ameritrade. It doesn't really matter as long as there's a dependable uh, and secure low risk place for people to store their money. We just wanted an inexpensive and secure place to store our client money without also being an employee of that broker dealer because they have an incentive to try to pull the strings in certain ways to get me to do certain things to most often protect the firm and not the client. So 
it's not as though we're not certified in any way. Uh, I've got 37 years of experience and not a single blemish on my compliance record. And there's lots of paper trail that people can find about me if they want to look for that. Right. So, you know, it, I don't want to say we're out of the pandemic because we're not. Um, but what are, you know, what are some of the challenges that, that you guys as a firm have faced, you know, during this, this COVID time? It has been a boom for us. Um, we've been in the office the entire time. We had clients that had deposited uh, close to $100 million in the depths of the pandemic sell-off last spring, spring of 2020. In the past uh, year and a half, we've had almost $200 million worth of client inflows, and we've had almost $400 million worth of client profits that have shown up in their securities. We, we manage a billion two here, and you can do the math on that. So the, in the last 20 months, the firm has doubled in size. Uh, so people have a lot of money and securities are going up in market value. And frankly, I view that as the biggest challenge. You know, what do we do for the hundred million that we have coming inbound right now from other investors? You know, it's a, it's a much more treacherous marketplace at current market levels. Uh, and so we're a little concerned about that. We're also concerned about rising interest rates, putting pressure on bond values and giving people another alternative. I, I do fear that the decline in interest rates that's culminated over the last 40 years has driven a lot of people into the equity market who are really only temporary visitors. And at the first sign of trouble, they're all gonna abandon ship and move. Um, you know, that could create a lot of volatility that we really don't like to experience. But frankly, it's a good thing. You know, the, the branches get broken out of the tree and the tree grows fresh limbs. You know, ultimately rattling of the trees like that is a good thing for those of us that are permanent um, investors. Right. Now, you know, if you, if, if you could talk to your, your younger self, what would, it, what would you have told yourself to do different when you first started out in the industry? I would tell myself to take bigger risks sooner in my career. I didn't start my firm until I was 50. I'm 62 now. Um, I should have started my firm 20 years ago, been 10 years sooner. When I was 40, after I had already been in the business for 16 years, I should have started my firm then. Uh, but it's, you know, they, they say you say in your current situation until the fear of uh, staying is worse than the fear of leaving. And I kind of found myself in that situation where I could clearly see uh, what my clients should be doing and what I should be doing and how much of that was prohibited by my brokerage firm and, and not for the right reasons. And so I ultimately was motivated to leave, and, but I should have done it 10 years sooner. Um, what do you see changing, you know, in the next year or so in your industry um, that, that you have concerns about? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, the, the volatility and everything, but what do you see in the next year or so that that is going to change things? Well, I don't know if it'll change in the next year or so, but changes that have recently occurred have been this, um, the, uh, the the fiduciary standard regulation best interest was passed, I think, September of last year, uh, which is really not a best interest standard. If you Google best interest standard and apply it to the brokerage industry, you'll see that there's really only four criteria that you have to try to eliminate conflicts of interest. In the inability to eliminate a conflict of interest, you have to disclose it. You have to care that what you're saying to the client is actually true. And anything that doesn't fit within that, you have to create 
a form CRS, which is the client uh, disclosure document, and it can't be any longer than two pages long to ostensibly make people read it. So it's a complete dance around the real issue, and that's the lack of fiduciary care in the brokerage industry. And I really don't know whether it's fully reconcilable. The brokerage industry really does need a commissionable sleeve, and I don't think it's fair for the regulators to try to force that into a fiduciary standard. There's going to be a whole class of citizen that gets zero service whatsoever when commissionable activity isn't all bad, and I can envision a lot of circumstances where grandpa's got $100,000 worth of securities and four grandkids inherit it. You are not going to get any advice from a fiduciary advisor. They are not going to want to touch it. You know, paying a thousand dollars in commissions for advice would be the best way to handle it. You are not going to be able to force that broker into fiduciary standard on four people that he's never met before. So there's just irreconcilable issues that I don't think the regulators fully understand and that I don't think investors fully understand it either. And there's not a one size fits all where you can just brush the entire advice community and say, everybody's got to be a fiduciary. Well, there's plenty of fiduciaries out there. The brokers have a place. Uh, so uh, I think that's one of the issues that will continue to plague us. Yeah, I, th I think lots of times too that that what I've seen is, is and this is in, in every industry, finance uh, part of the industry, uh, not just yours, mine also, is that the number of clients that you take on to be able to service them, um, to be able to, to I'm going to say, make the income that you want to make lots of times, you know, uh, there, there's issues there with that. I agree. So, and that's the reason why we've had to raise our minimum several times, just simply yeah. because there's more people looking for us than we are looking for them. So. Yeah. And I, I think that that's one of the things, you know, you're doing, you're doing your advice um, to your clients a little bit differently than, than others do. I try to do the same thing where we do more tax planning as compared to tax preparation. And I always try to explain to people, there's a difference between planning and preparing. There's, there's a huge thing difference. with you guys. That's and exactly it's, right. it's just, I, I think people really need to understand that. And that if you want the planning side of things, you need to be willing to pay for it. That's right. Um, same thing in, in your industry. And it's, it's amazing how sometimes people don't, don't understand that. Yeah, it's, that's true. So we've covered a lot of stuff, Gil. What what have I not asked you that you wish I had? Oh, just, you know, I guess more about risk. Uh, people really need to understand what their risk appetite is when they begin to embark. Uh, you'll have people who will say, uh, you know, hey, how come I didn't outperform the S&P? Well, here's the question. In 2008, would you be willing to lose 58% of your money by owning the S&P? Everybody's going to say no. Right. So they're not entitled to an S&P return unless they're willing to lose 58% of their market value. And so it's the, it's the disconnect between the expectation for a return and the true real um, uh, chicken little that resides in every one of us. And I think we need to have a uh, a meeting with ourselves about how much risk do we really want. And um, I think that people really need to, you know, 
have a good grip on that. And I think the best performers are the ones that stick with that through thick and thin and don't try to sculpt it in such a way that they add risk when they think it's a good time. And then they subtract risk when they don't think it's a good time. You're going to get behind the eight ball real quick. If you start doing that, not to mention, you're going to be creating taxes for yourself as you shift strategy, picking one future goal, 20 or 30 years from now and sticking with it through thick and thin, you are going to outrun everybody else. Uh, so that would be what I would tell people to stay focused on. That's great. Great advice. So Gil, if, if our listeners like what they hear and they want to be able to reach out to you and your firm and, and talk to you guys, how can they reach you? Uh, Segment Wealth Management is the name of my firm, segmentwm.com. They can go to my website. Uh, gilbaumgarten.com is also an active website. Gil with one L, B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N. There's all kinds of things on there. I'm involved in charitable giving activities. I have uh, some artwork that I've posted on there, various things about who I am. Uh, go to the Gil Baumgarten website or the Segment WM website. Okay, great. We really appreciate your time and your advice today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great. So today our guest was Gil Baumgarten, who's the founder and CEO of Segment. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Adios. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.